just an, an acknowledgement of everyday life. <laughs> everyday life these days, my life, I hope, I hope I'm not alone in this, our lives are driven, we might even say dictated, by our work schedules. We clock in and we clock out. Even if there's not actually a, a time clock, mentally, we clock in and we clock out. We have days off, and those are precious. No one gets more excited when they have a day off. And we take time off. But otherwise, and that's why we're so excited when we have days or time off, our schedule is dictated by our employment. The calendar and the clock of our lives have become centered around our productivity in society. And some of us just accept it as that's just the way it is, and that's the way it'll always be. But we forget it wasn't always this way. Long ago, we used to mark time differently than we do now. Before the Industrial Revolution, going back to history class, life was organized, in fact, around our worship of God and our sharing of the gospel. Many Christian communities, in fact, still observe in the midst of the reality that I just spoke of, they still observe the rhythms and seasons of what has been known as the church calendar. The church calendar is centuries old, and what it does is it seeks to frame each year and each week of our lives around a cyclical reenactment of the story of Christ, the story that we love to tell, the story of his birth through his passion and the establishment of his church. And one of the many benefits of telling time in this way, if you've never learned it, or never been exposed to it, one of the benefits of telling time in this way, this annual rehearsal of the gospel, is it helps to reorient our focus and our purpose in our lives. It puts less of our attention on our work and our busyness, which are temporal, temporary. And it puts more of our observance on that which is eternal and lasting. Acts of relationship, of faith, hope, love, compassion, generosity. Now, I bring all of this up because on the church calendar, today is a day known as Trinity Sunday. These days, if most churches observe the church calendar, as we do, we tend to celebrate the big ones. Christmas, Easter, seasons like Advent and Lent. Here at Grace, we highlight a few others, as you probably know, Reformation Sunday, All Saints Day, Pentecost Sunday last week. Trinity Sunday, though, hasn't made the cut for most churches, including ours, for the last few years. And this is unfortunate because Trinity Sunday presents us not just with an event or a person to celebrate, but with a doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, I saw it. There were just a few of you who immediately started to look down. Now, before you groan and stop listening because I said the word doctrine, consider that our concept, our belief in the Trinity, and many, it's interesting how we don't think about this, our concept, our belief in the Trinity is one of the major distinctives that separates Christianity from the major religions in the world. We often talk, there are many differences, we often talk about commonalities between our own faith as Christians with those who are Jewish and even those who are Muslim, belief in one God. But you sit down with someone who's Jewish or Muslim and start to talk about we believe in one God, they will say to you, ah yes, but then there's that Trinity. The Trinity is distinctive to Christianity. As Christians, we don't just believe in one God. We profess a single God who exists in three persons, equal in divinity yet distinct in personality. Now, what's really interesting is that if we were to search our Bibles cover to cover, we would not find the word Trinity anywhere within its pages. Nowhere 
is the concept of Trinity explicitly spelled out in the scriptures. And yet, it is one of the distinctives of the Christian faith. Because early Christians, early followers of Christ like us, arrived at this doctrine, this idea of the Trinity, as they applied their God-given reason to the extraordinary passages that were in scripture. Extraordinary passages like the one that we are about to look at now. You've always heard it as the Great Commission, and it is. But it's a doctrine that declares, it's a passage that declares the doctrine of the Trinity. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. When the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is an important passage, a well-known passage, the Great Commission, kind of our mission statement for why we exist. It's a passage that gets invoked at baptism because it's, it puts baptism in its proper context. But this is also a passage where if you were to look for this idea, this understanding of Trinity, it's right here. Now, many of us, and, and I'm speaking to, a, to a, a group that I know has grown up in the church, most of us, especially the Lutheran church, we all know that we acknowledge and celebrate the Trinity every time we make the sign of the cross in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet, even though we acknowledge some of us have grown up with that, that sign and with that language, if you actually sit down and talk to most Christians, we don't really understand the Trinity, let alone the importance of this doctrine. And that's what I want to try to do this morning. This morning, I'd like us to get a better grasp of the Trinity. I'd like us to understand the Trinity a little bit better, and specifically, why the Trinity matters in the life of our faith. Because for many a Christian, we often throw up our hands and we'll say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I don't understand it, I can't explain it, and it doesn't really matter, so it's, which, okay, we just believe it and put it to the side. But it's, an, it's so vital to how we live out this faith that we have. The idea of the Trinity, where the early church got it, is based on what Jesus taught us. If you've ever thought about the scriptures, if you've ever thought about the story that we love and how it's content according to Christ, Jesus spoke again and again about the Father, the Father who sent him the Son. And he also spoke towards the end of his time before he went to the cross about the Holy Spirit, the one whom he was going to send. And he said that the Father had given him, the Son, all that he has. And then Jesus said, and I'm now going to give all that I have to the Holy Spirit all that I've received from the Father. So Jesus, if you were to go back and look at how he would often speak, he was continually speaking in terms of the Trinity, of the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. And in the story of salvation, the way we generally try to sort this out is we usually attribute creation to the Father, redemption in the midst of sin, our forgiveness in Christ, our freedom to the Son, and our sanctification, big churchy word, our transformation in Christ our transformation of who we were intended to be to the Holy Spirit. And if you even and that's a, a helpful frame, because if you view it in this way, you see the unity of, pur of purpose amongst the three persons of the Trinity. And yet, even though they are distinct as persons, neither the Father nor the Son nor the Holy Spirit ever exists in separation or acts in isolation from the other. They're interrelated. Now, <laughs> I worked really hard on those last three sentences, and I can already see that some of you are like, ooh. Let's be clear. 
before we proceed on. This idea of an inner relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a mystery. How these persons relate to one another in a way that each of them is not three gods, but one fully and equal God baffles the human mind. Over the years, as many of you who have been in Sunday school or who have taught Sunday school know, when we talk about the Trinity, we have tried all kinds of analogies to explain how this works. And if I may be so bold, most of these analogies confuse as much as they help us. We have the apple. The Trinity's like an apple. It's the seed, it's the flesh, and it's the skin. But it's all the apple, right? Or maybe you heard the Trinity's like water. Water can be steam, it can be water, and it can be ice. Yep, but the Trinity is all those things at the same time. Or water is like, and you can change the gender if you prefer, it's like a, a, a man who's a husband, a dad, and a worker at the same time. All three of those roles, yet still the same person. Again, we, there's all different analogies that have come up. Those are probably the big three, and yet even though most of us have learned them in Sunday school, we still don't get it. We still don't get it. And just to give us a little bit of encouragement, if your head's spinning, there's a story told about one of our greatest theologians in the church, St. Augustine. Augustine, much like maybe you at some point in your life, maybe this morning, very much wanted to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. He wanted to understand it so that he could explain it logically to others. And one day, he was walking along the shore reflecting on this, on the Trinity, and he glimpsed a small child along the shore. The child had made a hole in the sand, and she would run to the sea. He watched her. She ran to the sea with a little cup, filled her cup, and then poured it into the hole that she had made into the sand. Back and forth, she went to the sea, filling up her cup and then pouring it into the hole. Finally, he couldn't take it any longer. Augustine went up to her and said, little child, what are you doing? And she replied, I'm trying to empty the sea into this hole. How do you think, Augustine then asked her, that you can empty the immense sea into this tiny hole with this tiny cup? To which she replied, and you, how do you suppose that with your small head you can comprehend the immensity of God? <laughs> and with that, the child disappeared. Like Augustine, we may not be able to fully understand the mystery, the how of the Trinity. But beloved, this morning we can and we should wrestle with the why of the Trinity. Rather than seeing the Trinity this morning, and I'm really going to endeavor not to do this to you, rather than try to see the Trinity as some kind of abstract concept or doctrine, let us perceive within this mystery insight into the very nature of who God is. In other words, the real question for us this morning is what does the doctrine of the Trinity tell us about the kind of God we worship? The Trinity, if you've never thought about it before, this uniquely Christian understanding of a God who is, who reveals to us that he is three distinct persons and yet one God, tells us, if nothing else, that our God is not a loner, that our God is not a reclusive God. And oftentimes that's how, in generic ways, we envision God, as this reclusive, distant Sometimes we portray him as an old man who, yeah, all right, I did that, now I'm moving on to something else. But the Trinity says our God is not a loner or a reclusive God. Our God is not a solitary being. Our God does not exist in isolation. The Trinity declares that our God exists in a community of relationship. The God we call Yahweh 
And back in Exodus, when Moses gets the revelation of that name, Yahweh, I am that I am, I will be what I will be. This God we call Yahweh is a relational God, a God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal in power and majesty. And when we think about it, just in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one of the things we've always held together as the church in the midst of that mystery is that the Trinity is not about one part of the Trinity lording it over the others. There is no hierarchy. In God, there is no above or below. There is no superior or inferior. There are no insiders or outsiders. Though we're wanting the church to pick our favorite part of the Trinity, biblically, the Trinity is one. In relation to each other, each person of the Trinity lives in a free society of equals, if you will. And this is significant for us that this is how we understand this God, this relational God and yet not a hierarchical God. Because the Bible tells us for a reason that we are created in the image of God. We have been created male and female in reflection of the triune God, of the Trinity. In other words, as bearers of the divine image, if you've ever wondered, what am I here for? The number one of the number one answers that everyone has is we are here for relationship. And for all the introverts in the room, I'm sorry if that's bad news for you. We are created for relationship. We reflect the divine image. As bearers of the divine image, we are, exist for relationship. And that, what that means is that in our lives, if we're hungering, pursuing after God, if we're look, going after godliness, if we're seeking to be committed to worshiping and following this God, then that means that what we have to resist, what is not part of reflecting the image of God, is being isolated or individualistic. And that's a word we need to hear today because as much as we are more connected, we are much more isolated and individualistic. Our connectivity, ironically, allows us to be more isolated and individualistic even as we're connecting. The next time you text your grand grandkid, you're talking to them, but think about how connected to them you really are. The Bible presents a God who is relational, a God who, in relationship, and then creating us in, in the image of God, in that image, we are in relationship. And that means the Trinity affirms that there are no Lone Ranger Christians. So when you talk to those who say, you know what, I believe in Jesus, but I don't need to be around other Christians, I don't need to be a part of the church, you are denying the reflection of God that is within you. We are created for relationship. We are created to be together. The Trinity helps us to understand the creation and birth of the church which we celebrated last week, that the church is created not as individual Christians, not as single believers, but as a body, as a reflection, again, of the person of God. The Trinity challenges the popular principle. It's been around for a long time that life is about looking out for number one. Instead, God wants us to find the purpose of our lives in an I, God, and neighbor principle. In contrast to what the world says, the Bible says the philosophy of me, myself, and I doesn't make us more human, doesn't make us more free, it makes us less. Less human, less free. The Trinity declares that each of us only becomes more fully human when we are in relationship with this God and with each other. I am a Christian. Our lives become Trinitarian, like the God we worship, not when we retreat from this world, but when we engage in this world it, through relationships with God and with other people. Now, I want to pause here for a second because, you know, our minds might go to this place that, okay, well, to declare that the Trinity means our God is relational, does that mean that our God is needy? 
something that's significant about the Trinity is the Trinity declares our God to be relational, but that's not the same thing to say as our God is needy. God is in this eternal relationship that is completely contained, self-sufficient. Our God creates us not out of need. We, are, we were not created to complete God. We were not created to entertain God. We were not created because God was bored. We were not created to validate God. And I say these things because if you think about myths, other ways we conceptualize God, that's often the example we give. God was bored, the gods were bored, and they made humanity. The gods wanted to have a little fun, so they made humanity. The gods were missing something, so they made humanity. The God that we worship, Yahweh, is not bored, does not look to be entertained, is not being completed. This God, and this is significant, this God creates us out of a complete relationship that needs nothing else. This God creates us out of love. The Bible tells us again and again that God is love. We've heard that all our lives. If nothing else, we've all grown up knowing that God is love or at least hearing it. But what's interesting is how the Bible explains that simple idea, God is love, how the Bible explains this statement, what it means to say that God is love, how the Bible explains it is by telling us the story of God's love in practice. Why do we have a Bible? Why are we, do we love to tell the story? Because it's through the story we understand what it means when we say that God is love. We may have noticed that before that there's this story, but doesn't it make sense that to understand God as love is to understand the story? Because in our own lives, the best way that you can know that someone's love for you is more than a feeling, the best way in our own lives that you can know that someone's love for you is more than just words is seeing what that love that they declare means in practice. The story of God's love for us is the revelation of a generous and sacrificial act of self-donation. But if you stop and think about this story that we love to tell, you can't tell that story. You can't experience that love without the Trinity. Think about it. God the Father loves his creation into being. God created the world out of love and like a parent for his children, God the Father cares for us, nurtures us, watches over us, and directs us in that love. God the Father's love is most evident in his willingness to get involved with us. Even as we reject his presence and authority in our lives, even as we spoil and ruin his creation with our rebellion, God the Father goes on loving us and does all he can to rescue us from evil, to win our love for him. This is the entire story of the Old Testament, God's involvement with the people of Israel. And it's a story that comes to climax with Jesus, God the Son. God the Son who loves his creation by becoming one of us. Jesus comes down and is born in our flesh and our blood. From the start, the church wrestled with understanding how this could possibly work. Just in case we're confused, they were always confused. For the followers of a Jewish Messiah, they knew, they were taught all their lives, there was only one God. And yet they also knew, they sensed it, they heard him say it, that somehow God had done something new for them in Jesus Christ. This man was not just the son of a carpenter from a small town in Judea. Somehow they knew that God, through Jesus, had become our human brother, living and dying for us, offering his own self for all the world. Jesus put it this way, to the awe of some and to the chagrin of others, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Paul, later on, after his conversion, would try to express it this way, 
Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. God the Father, God the Son, and last week we celebrated how God the Spirit loves creation by pouring out herself on all flesh through the filling and empowerment of Pentecost, of our hearts and minds at Pentecost. But the early church also struggled. The early church also struggled how to understand the Holy Spirit. As they shared life together in the risen Lord Jesus, they suddenly experienced God's presence in a new way. God the Spirit is the God who loves us enough to not only come among us, but to come into our very being. That's what we celebrated yesterday. To come into our very being and love us from the inside. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our shared life, leading us in the ongoing mission of Jesus, sharing love with us so that we are enabled to engage with others in the life-changing reality of divine love. You can't tell that story without the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity became a way for the first Christians to describe how God has, had given his own self to them. First through the prophets of Israel, then through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and finally in the continuing presence of the Holy Spirit in their community. Out of their relationship with Jesus as teacher, savior, and risen Lord, out of their worship of this God who raised Jesus from the dead, out of their experience of the power of the Holy Spirit, the early Christians began to speak of God as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's love brought them to life in the work of the Father. God's love met them face to face in the man, Jesus Christ. God's love radiated out of them through the Holy Spirit. They realized, and we should too, that it is only because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God can love us in the way that he does. It is only because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God can be, can be in his essence, caring, self-sacrificial, self-giving love. And that leads us to the final reason why we need to celebrate the Trinity, why we need to explore this mystery of the Trinity. Because God in Christ participates in our humanity because that happens. Because God in, in the Spirit implants himself in our humanity, we now become participants in the divine life. We are invited to the dance. The mystery of God as Trinity is our ethical mandate. How do we live? Why do we live? It's our call to mission. It's the call to mission of all the baptized. Addison has heard it this morning, and she will be ringing in her ears and in her heart for the rest of her life. Jesus gives us very specific instructions as his followers. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Experts in religion tell us that people always try to be like the God they worship. People always try to be like the God they worship. People who worship a warrior God tend to be warriors. People who tend to worship a God of pleasure tend to be, surprise, surprise, pleasure-seeking. People who worship a God of wrath tends to be angry people. The point is, worshipers reflect the image of the God they worship. The, the commandment against idolatry is a warning, make sure you're reflecting the right image. The beauty of the Trinity is the freedom of God 
that's revealed through this self-giving love is an image that we are called, we are enabled to reflect. As worshipers of this God, this God who is love, love in action, love born of sacrifice and compassion, we are to be a community of love, fearless love for God and selfless love for each other. The commission that we receive from our Lord Jesus Christ is clear. He says to us, don't keep this wonderful mystery of God's love all to yourselves. Give it away. Go out there and share it. Model the good news by living my teachings in your daily lives. Invite everybody to come and be a part of God's family. Let everybody know that God loves them and wants them to know the love and joy that unites the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bring all the nations into God's fold, transforming a divided world into one beloved community. God's reclamation project is reflected in the very image of the Trinity. Shalom, the wholeness that we speak of, is for one day the community of humanity, creation itself, to be one beloved community. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the early followers, the first Christians, they got this. You have to open up the pages of Acts to see they got this. Instead of sitting around trying to figure God out, which many of us seem to be, that's our tendency, I'm going to do something once I got this God figured out, back to pouring the little cup of water into the sand. The early church devoted themselves, we're told, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to sharing their possessions with the needy. They existed as a radical, transforming community characterized by equality, respect, and devotion. And they set an empire, the Roman Empire, on its head. In their mutual submission to God and to each other, all traces of selfishness were banned and banished from their lives as they sought to live in love of God and of each other. And the church grew. The church grew in the midst of persecution. The church grew in the midst of mockery. The church grew in the midst of being thrown to the lions, literally. And as the church grew, what came to be the defining understanding of our faith this understanding of God as Trinity, as being one being in a triune of persons, it wasn't some armchair theologian who thought up the Trinity because it was cool. On the contrary, from the very fabric of the community of faith, of people who were living and dying for what they believed, who were so invested in the scriptures and in the people to whom God called them, they began to understand this God better. The Trinity emerged from the early church's experience of this mystery of God that's experienced in love, service, and worship. So if we sit here this morning and we shake our heads and we go, I don't get it. It's not about another book. It's not about another sermon. It's about entering into the mystery of God, the mystery of experiencing this God in submitting to his call to love, to serve, and to worship. Beloved, we have a fresh opportunity this morning. It's Trinity Sunday. We have a fresh opportunity to come to grips with an essential conviction of our faith that three isn't a crowd. Three is the Trinity. As we encounter the centuries-old math of the church, one plus one plus one equals one, one God, we need to embrace that the Trinity isn't a problem to be solved or a concept to be figured out. 
The reality of the triune God is the ultimate mystery to be worshipped and obeyed. It is a relationship to be explored and entered into. It is the eternal love within God, the love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit which God shares with us. When God sends his Son into the world to befriend us, and when God sends his Spirit into our hearts, it's like being welcomed into the family. That's what we claim this morning for Addison. She's been welcomed into a bigger family. God is opening up his own life of love for us to share in. And the presence of that, that kind of a gift, the presence of the Trinity in our lives, elicits our love in return. My friend, our baptism is our commissioning to show the world who God is. That's what Addison hopefully will grow into. That commission through her life, through the woman that God has destined for her to become, to show the world who this God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And baptism commissions each of us to model in our relationships with our friends and family, strangers and enemies, that same kind of love, that same kind of respectful, just, loving relationship that emanates out of the life of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God wants us to be so transformed by the healing power of Jesus' forgiveness, the hope of resurrection, that our lives shine as beacons of light in the darkness. God, beloved, wants us to be Easter people in a Good Friday world. Easter people in a Good Friday world. God wants us with our lives to mirror the life and love of the Trinity. If that seems like more than we can handle, and I know for me sometimes it does, it seems like an overwhelming gift, but an, an incredible responsibility. If we feel discouraged, if we wonder how we could possibly be a part of this or how any one of us could make a difference, remember this also about the Trinity, where we started. Because we follow a God who is not a loner, we are never alone. The triune God, as Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission, is with us always, even to the end of the age. We follow the God who has overcome this world through the glory of the cross and the victory of the resurrection. So when we surrender ourselves before this God, he can't contain himself. His love overflows so much that he doesn't just bring us to life, he becomes one of us. He comes to us in the Holy Spirit. As the Trinity, God isn't a long way off. So if God feels far in your life, remember the Trinity. Because God isn't a long way off. God is right here. In the Trinity, God will love us and never leave us. Through the Trinity, God sends us out there, together, inspired, empowered, enduring, saving and transforming the world through us, one life at a time. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.